another ADC soundbite. All right, we're here with another ADC soundbite. I'm sitting with Dr. Craig Evans to talk about his new book, which is called From Jesus to the Church, The First Christian Generation. So, Craig, this is a bit of a part two book, correct? Yes, it is, Danny. Uh, I was preparing the lectures on which the book is based uh, for lectures I gave in Israel in 2010. And, of course, at the same time, I was writing uh, Jesus and his world, the archaeological evidence, and so uh, I saw the uh, archaeology book is, is um, like part one, where we would assess what the archaeological evidence tells us about Jesus and his world and his disciples, the beginning of the church. And then this book that has just come out, From Jesus to the Church, then talks about uh, not just that evidence, but the history as well. Uh, Josephus, particularly that historian, and the New Testament writings themselves to help us understand how we go from the movement that Jesus launched uh, to the church. And so it's been fun uh, working, uh, you know, in this like large project that has produced two books. So I imagine this is kind of the way you often work where you're writing something, you're writing a particular book and you start getting ideas for another book. That's essentially what happened here too, right? Yes, uh, and oftentimes, uh, and any scholar uh, will tell you this, that... Uh, uh, when a book is being written, there, there are things that have been researched, things that have been learned and discovered that don't quite fit into that particular book. And so uh, by the time one finishes a given book, you, at least for me anyway, there are pieces and chunks, parts lying about, as it were, that make up uh, a sequel book. And so it, it's a, like a chain. It's like links in a chain. One book leads to another, the research continues, and the discovery continues, and I find that very gratifying. Mm, very good. So for the remainder of the podcast, I'm going to ask questions specifically about this book and some of the issues you tackle. And so the first question I want to ask is, uh, and the question that you ask and ponder is, did Jesus intentionally plan to begin the Christian church? Uh, yeah, and that's, that's a key question that's been debated actually uh, for more than 100 years in critical scholarship. And, you, and you'll hear people answer it variously. They'll say, no, Jesus didn't found the church. The Apostle Paul did, for example. And I, I do interact with that. I think that's a, a serious mistake. Um, other, and even the, the late Geza Vermesh uh, suggested that Jesus did not envision a church that lasts for 2,000 years or, or more. And, and I think that that needs to be qualified. Um, I think what Jesus envisioned and achieved was creating a, a congregation, a community, a kahal, to put it in Hebrew, or ekklesia, to put it in Greek. That is a, an assembly of people who had come together. And uh, I don't think he envisioned something outside of Israel. And so in that sense, I would answer the question no. But I answer it yes, because uh, he created a community, and a community that would continue to proclaim the rule of God, that would continue to uh, Jesus' own ministry of transforming Israel, transforming the world. And uh, Jesus' vision, I think, anticipated the inclusion of Gentiles. We see hints of that in his ministry. And that's what Paul and other leaders in the early church uh, understood. And that's why they ministered uh, in missionary activity the way they did. And so I think with qualification, you could say, yes, Jesus did anticipate the church. 
um, it, it may have taken on some characteristics that he did not anticipate. But as a community uh, centered on him and centered on his proclamation of the King of God, I think that's exactly what he wanted to do. Mm, great. And so you just mentioned kingdom of God, and so that's the next question. How do we understand kingdom of God and that concept, obviously a core concept for Jesus' teaching, how do we understand that in relation to the church? Well, the kingdom of God is uh, the announcement that God is the real king. He rules the world. Uh, Caesar doesn't, or other human kings don't. And so Jesus' community uh, comes together under the, uh, the lordship, the kingship, of God. And so that's its distinctive marker. It's not concerned about finding some human king who will uh, defeat the Romans in battle or something like that. And that's in contrast to the popular messianic views uh, that were uh, out and about in Jesus' own day and unfortunately led to some catastrophic uh, wars and uh, disasters in the first and second centuries. So Jesus anticipated a, a forming a community under God's kingship, uh, and uh, this community did form. Jesus proclaimed it. it. His proclamation was not some Greek concept. It wasn't all about egalitarianism, as some popular views have it. It was the announcement that what was foretold in Isaiah and elsewhere in the old Hebrew scriptures had in fact come to pass, and it was going to change the world. That's what he proclaimed. His disciples have embraced that, and they continue uh, on with his vision and his ministry. Mm. And so when you deal with that first Christian generation, obviously the question of James came up. I think we underestimate or undervalue James because we have so many of Paul's letters, so we focus on Paul a lot. So how significant was James in the early church? Well, I think James was hugely important. Uh, Paul himself acknowledges uh, the importance of James, mentions him by name. Paul met him and discusses that uh, in uh, his letter to the churches of Galatia. He also mentions James as a key witness to the risen Christ uh, in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. James was very important. James, in effect, succeeded Peter. Peter left Jerusalem. Now, Peter went on to have a very key ministry, first in Antioch and later in Rome itself. But James is the one that, that gave leadership uh, to the uh, church in Jerusalem. And my book is, is mostly uh, focused on that, the kind of leadership, the rivalry between uh, James and, and the high priestly family. And so James was uh, the leader for about 20 years, I would say, from 40, uh, 41 or 2. A.D. until he was uh, martyred in 62. And uh, so he set the pace for the early church. And, and uh, even the church up in Antioch uh, showed a lot of deference and respect uh, for James. Mm. And this brings us to a bit of a segue between what we are more familiar with, Paul, and James, the only letter that we have from James, and the concept of works of the law. So we have that phrase uh, in the New Testament. We have it elsewhere uh, in Qumran. So can you tell us a bit about uh, what this was, what is works of the law, and how do we understand this bit of tension that perhaps we can feel between James and the letters of Paul on this matter? Yes, uh, Martin Luther is famous for calling the epistle of James an epistle of straw because he talks about how important works are because without works then one doesn't have a living faith. 
your faith is dead if there are no works. That actually is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Paul talks about works of the law. He's not talking about works of compassion or works of righteousness or works of love or works of mercy. That, those are the works that James is talking about. Paul and James do not differ. And the, a letter found at Qumran, in fact there are six fragmentary copies of it from K4, it's called MMT. Uh, the Hebrew uh, words mean uh, some of the works of the law. And what MMT shows is that there are works of the law, and that's the exact phrase in Hebrew that's used uh, that matches the Greek phrase Paul uses in his letters to the Galatians and to the Romans. And what these works of the law say is that you must keep purity, you must avoid Gentile food, uh, the, there's ceremonial uh, aspects of law, and that's what Paul is criticizing in his letters. You cannot be justified in God's sight because of those kinds of works. And that's not what uh, James is talking about. He's saying your faith is not a real faith if there are no works, works of compassion where you reach out to somebody in need, uh, somebody who's hungry, somebody who's cold. If all you do is pat them on the back and say, have a good day, that's not a real living faith. So thanks to Qumran and, and other related writings, we're able to sort this out and recognize that James is talking about something else and it's not something Paul would disagree with. Paul writing a bit later, I believe, is correcting a tendency toward a Judaizing legalism that says you really do have to watch what you eat, you have to avoid impurity and watch out uh, in associating with Gentiles, and that's what Paul so sharply criticizes, especially in Galatians, and that's why he criticizes Peter, because Peter was being hypocritical on that very point. Peter wouldn't eat meals with Gentiles, and so Peter was, in effect, following the teaching, uh, you might say, found in that letter at Qumran. He was being careful that he ate pure food uh, from a, a Judaic point of view. Mm. Now, in the previous uh, part where I was asking about James, you alluded to the uh, tension between James and the Jerusalem church and the high priest and his followers, and so I want to pick that up because you explore that conflict between Jesus and his followers and then on the other side Annas the high priest and his followers so can you tell us a little bit about that and as well in this book you introduce us to another Jesus Jesus ben Ananias so how does he fit into this story of conflict well this was why I wrote the book I, I was very excited about this I became convinced that this chap called uh, Jesus Ben Ananias, and he's described by Josephus in his Jewish Wars, Book 6, uh, this Jesus Ben Ananias began proclaiming sermons uh, based on uh, Jeremiah 7. Now remember, Jesus of Nazareth alluded to Jeremiah 7 when he was in the temple precincts, we think in the year 30 or perhaps 33, when he referred to uh, the temple as not a house of prayer for the nations, but rather a cave of robbers. That cave of robbers comes right out of Jeremiah 7.11. Well, here, fast forward now 30 years, and we have another Jesus, Ben Ananias, and he's wandering about the city of Jerusalem, and he's appealing to Jeremiah 7 
the voice from the north and the voice from the south, the voice of gladness and so on, being no longer heard in Jerusalem. Well, that's how Jeremiah 7 concludes. That's the last verse, verse 34. And if you're a high priest, you don't want to hear anybody preaching sermons based on Jeremiah 7 uh, in the temple precincts because uh, Jeremiah 7 was, was an oracle that pronounced the destruction of the temple. It condemned the, the temple leadership as immoral and violent and proclaim God's judgment on it. Now, why did, you know, so I'm wondering, what a coincidence that this guy named Jesus, Ben Ananias, uh, is preaching a Jeremiah 7 sermon and is being persecuted. And then it occurred to me, wait a minute, look at the timing. In the year 62, the Roman governor uh, in, uh, in Judea dies suddenly and unexpectedly. Before he can be replaced... Annas Jr., that is the son of Annas the high priest that you hear about in John's Gospel, chapter 18, Annas Jr. seizes James and a few others, accuses them of breaking the law, and has them executed by stoning. The new Roman uh, governor arrives, and uh, people are complaining about what Annas Jr. did, and so Annas Jr. is removed from the high priesthood. Shortly after that, Jesus ben Ananias, not related, of course, to the high priest, this second Jesus person begins preaching Jeremiah 7. So what I've concluded is that Jesus ben Ananias, in fact, is a Christian, and he's protesting what happened to James. And so he's warning that the prophecy told, uttered long ago, 30 years earlier, by Jesus of Nazareth is about to uh, be fulfilled. And sure enough, seven years later, go from 63 to 70, it is fulfilled when the Romans surrounded, attacked, invaded, conquered Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. So I'm pursuing that history. It's about a 40-year history from 30 to 70 of this family feud, you might call it, this rivalry between Jesus and his family, on the one hand, and Annas Sr. and his five sons who became high priests following him, and the son-in-law, the well-known Caiaphas, who also served as high priest. And sure enough, you can see, in, if you read the book of Acts, that um, Stephen is martyred, James the son of Zebedee is martyred, uh, James the brother of Jesus is martyred, and you can see moments in this history where this ruling priestly family uh, tries to snuff out the Jesus movement in Jerusalem. And I, I thought, you know, nobody has traced this history that way. And I thought that would be something that would be really instructive and stimulating to explore. Hmm. And so the last question that you talk about in the book is something that in academia we call the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity. So obviously there's been a lot of books on the subject. We see, of course, in the book of Acts, there's already this tension growing, but it's still an in-Judaism tension. So can you give us your take on the parting of the ways? What happened? What were the significant, or who were the significant people in that process? And what were the significant events? Well, I think there are two major factors at work for why uh, the Jesus movement, the way it developed in the first century and by the end of the first century, beginning of the second, simply couldn't, I just couldn't reside within the synagogue anymore. Uh, I think there are these two reasons explain why the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue said, you know, you just can't be a Christian and be in the synagogue. And one of the reasons is because of the openness to the Gentiles. 
uh, Paul's teaching that, look, in Christ it doesn't matter. Food sacrificed to idols, what does it matter? Uh, just be sensitive about your weaker brother or sister who might be offended. But, you know, so if, if the kosher food laws aren't really important anymore uh, and pu other purity laws, I think that was just intolerable uh, for, for the synagogue, especially under the rabbinic leadership that was emerging in the aftermath of these wars in the first and second centuries. And the second reason, too, is that the confession that Jesus is God's Messiah. I think you can see in Trifo the Jew, for example, that with whom uh, Justin Martyr engages in the middle of the second century, that's just intolerable. How can Jesus be Israel's Messiah when he's been put to death by the Romans? And on top of that, related to that, is uh, the divinity of Jesus. This, he isn't just the Messiah in some sense of he's kind of like David and he's a great military commander, but he's God in the flesh. And so, you know, and, and I found a very interesting feature, uh, you know, when you, you study the Bar Kokhba revolt, Simon ben Kosova was called Bar Kokhba, which is Aramaic meaning son of the star. And when did that take place? That took place in 132 to 135. And I think this is the final, this is the final straw that causes the separation uh, between Jews and Christians. Because Simon was, he considered himself the son of the star, fulfillment of Numbers 2417. And our sources, two or three sources, tell us that he persecuted Christians. Uh, and Christians alone he persecuted, says one mm. source. And I think the reason for that, the best explanation is, is that Bar Kokhba, the son of the star, he was understood as the Messiah, the fulfillment of Messianic prophecies. He was the star that came, went forth from Jacob, as Numbers 24 puts it. Not Jesus. And so I think that was a major push, a, a major cause for separation. So if the Christians embraced Jesus as the Messiah, in a sense, God present or incarnate in him, and oh, by the way, this means that kosher food laws really aren't that important anymore. I think those are the real factors. Uh, so as we go through the second century, we find less and less of a link with Judaism. And that's unfortunate because the Jewish roots and context uh, for the Christian church and for Jesus and the New Testament writings, those roots are very important. And, and they, they, they need to be appreciated if we're going to understand Jesus and the New Testament properly. Great. Well, thanks so much for answering these questions. And uh, in the description of this podcast, you'll find a link to the new book, From Jesus to the Church, The First Christian Generation. And uh, we'll stick up a link uh, to Jesus and his world, the archaeological evidence. And thanks very much for listening to this ADC soundbite. Thanks a lot, Craig. Yeah, you're very welcome, Danny.